There's something really curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. Nominal, nominal, Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Unfortunately, this month, John Berger can't be with us. Aww. Nothing to do with John, it's just the fact that I've been away on business and we haven't had a chance to meet up and create a new episode. So I'm flying solo and I have got something planned for you, don't worry about that. You'll find out what that is in a moment. But um, I'd just like to apologise for the fact that the episode is late this month. There's been a lot going on and all will be revealed very soon. Before I waffle on anymore, we're going to take a short break and when we come back, I'll let you know what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks, thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and space launch system rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, the journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the red planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. This is TGP Nominal. Welcome back to TGP Nominal. Now, before the break, I mentioned that we were going to be doing something a bit different for this episode. Now, what I've arranged is um, I've dug out an old recording that I made all back in 2011 which was part of the Yuri's Night celebrations for that year, which was the 50th anniversary of uh, Yuri's launch into space. Now, if you're a listener to the original Garbage Pod back in the day when we used to be on Jellycast, you may have heard these recordings before, but I don't think anyone who listens to the modern version of TGP Nominal has heard these recordings. Now, I've always been one to have a recorder of one version or another going back to having a portable tape recorder back in the 80s when I was a kid. And a year or so before we started doing the Garbage pod podcast i bought a tascam recorder tascam is a, a manufacturer that i've always associated with quality when i was a kid i can remember tascam being one of the big names of the reel-to-reel tape recorders and thinking to myself wow that you know this is quality stuff so for me to actually buy a tascam digital recorder was absolutely awesome and I took this recorder to an event that took place in a place in Hertfordshire called Hitchin at uh, a venue called the British Schools Museum. And uh, this uh, event was a lecture which was conducted by a rocket scientist, a rocket engineer called Terry Ransom, who's been involved in many, many different missions. Um, he's been involved with the Space Shuttle, he's been involved with Soyuz, he's been involved with the Mars Express program. And and uh, he was talking about Yuri Gagarin and uh, Sergei Korolev and the, the Russian space program. And I asked Terry whether it would be okay for me to come along and record the proceedings. And he said, yeah, fine, as long as you mention the British Schools Museum in the recording. Terry isn't actually in that area anymore. He's not in the Hertfordshire area. He's moved down to the uh, southwest, out towards Bristol, and uh, he's a volunteer at an aviation museum uh, down in Bristol and he still gives out lectures and talks down in the southwest so if you're in that area Bristol Bath uh, or Bath (laughs) 
or one of those regions around there and you hear the name Terry Ransom, go along to one of these talks. He's also a member of the British Interplanetary Society, so he really does know his stuff. Let's play in the first part of his talk. Good evening. Good evening. Well, how wonderful to see so many people here. Um, welcome to the British Schools Museum. Um, when I start talking, I usually say, how many people have been here? But this goes on to say, how many people haven't been to this particular place before? Is that all? Just, just one or two people? Well, welcome especially. Now, this, this talk doesn't have an awful lot to do about um, schools, old schools, etc. But um, the, the space race was, was very much part of my, my upbringing. I was 14 when Yuri Gagarin uh, made his first space flight. Sorry? Don't look at tail, don't Hecklers go up the back. Um, but anyway, so we all know that you know Yuri Gagarin, who we're celebrating today, went into orbit, the first man to see the Earth from space in 1961. This was still a school here and up until 1969. So I do like to imagine the, uh, you know, the, the boys and the girls who were running about here in short trousers and listening to the news and, and thinking, my, what on earth is going on, you know? Um, it's perhaps commonplace now, but it, well, it certainly wasn't then. Um, so it's lift off time, so let's launch into this presentation. I just thought of that one. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I had an email from Russia today. Um, we're in touch with a, a lady called Elena Mastenitsa of University of St. Petersburg, who, um, well, she just celebrated her 50th birthday. She's a lecturer in museology, and she's done a lot of research about Lancasterian schools in Russia. And she's beautiful. <laughs> who, who wouldn't think she's 50? But what you don't know, Brian, and what I do know, is there are two ladies at the back from Russia. Are they really? <laughs> Welcome to you especially. Um, so this is Yuri's night. This is 50 years to the day that Yuri Gagarin went into, into space. The, the Yuri's Night is a worldwide celebration. It happens every year, but this is a special year. Yuridagarin50.org is, is an organization set up in the UK to, to celebrate this particular night. So we're part of all that. We're, part of, we're on all their websites, and uh, I'm sure that's why some of you are here. Well, as of last night, there were 469 events going on in 72 countries on six continents all six continents and in, and in space because the International Space Station is, is manned and they are celebrating as well. Um, today they say there are 500 events and this is one of them. Some of them are really raving parties in big marquees in NASA facilities and in Russia you're getting me. <laughs> So it's, it's, it is honouring Yuri Gagarin 50 years ago today. There is one an other anniversary today. Anybody know what it is? Go on. It's the uh, 30th anniversary of SDS-1, which was the <laughs> first launch of the Space Shuttle Columbia. <coughs> there we are. Yeah, 30 years ago today, 1981. Well, that's me. Um, that's my sort of... My little souvenir of having been out to the Russian launch site at Baikonur. Um, so, if you if you want to hear a little bit about me, this is it. Um, that's my first launch, spacecraft launch that I took part in. It was a Skylark sounding rocket. It was we launched it from Woomera in Australia in 1971. I just started my career. You can actually see three little other rockets that spin the thing up to keep it stable. When it, uh, it was carrying an X-ray detector experiment for the University of Leicester, it got to uh, a couple of hundred kilometres and it took a picture of something, not the right thing, and then the parachute failed and it crashed and burned into the Australian desert. Oh. I'm, I'm blind. Uh, 
It was part of International Geophysical Year. Many scientists in many countries were planning to investigate the upper atmosphere uh, as part of a, a first really big um, program of space exploration. All to be done, so we thought through this sort of thing, sounding rockets going up and coming down. So anyway, time moved on. In the later 1970s, I got out to Cape Canaveral. We launched a couple of spacecraft. GEOS-1, which is a geostationary orbiting scientific satellite. That got a bit of a kick from the third stage of the rocket, so it went into the wrong orbit. So we had to launch number two. We had uh, another contract to do another one, and that one worked fine. It, it's a geostationary orbit, so it's still there, being switched off for many a year. Then I went over to, to work in NASA in New Orleans and built the external tank for the shuttle. Most of those, well, they've all worked very well. Two shuttles were lost, of course, and we, you know, very emotional when you see pictures of that. Um, but not the fault of my external tanks in that case. And then this is a lead into it because in 2003, I went out to, to Baikonur in Kazakhstan where we launched the Mars Express uh, spacecraft. I was actually part of the Beagle probe to Mars that, as we know, crashed and not quite burnt, but uh, we never heard from it again. So, my success rate isn't great. <laughs> but there are many, many, many mitigating factors and possible things that could go wrong that uh, you can't blame me for, so I don't know. But that got me really thinking, I'm in this magical place where Yuri Gagarin was launched from. And before that, Sputnik, one, two, three, and lots of others. But here's Korolev. There's a statue to him out there who would be known as the chief designer all his life. Um, he was born in 1907 near Kiev and he, he had an early interest in flying and he built himself a glider and in 1831 he became a founder member of a group called GERD. 19, 19. 19. Sorry, 1930. What did I say? 1830. <laughs> I'm in a Victorian school. <laughs> Although even that wasn't Victorian. 1931 yeah, um, GERD, Group for Investigation of Reactive Motion. That's rockets. Reactive motion is rockets. And he was doing okay until 1938 when there was a knock on the door from the MKVD. And they accused him of being an active member of a sabotage organization. So he was taken away to the Gulag in uh, Siberia sentenced to 10 years. He was probably um, shocked, as we say, by his colleagues who were protecting themselves. These were the days when Stalin was purging and whisking people away if he took a dislike to them. So he spent some time out in Siberia, but he was given a bit of a reprieve. He wrote a confession that he was a saboteur, but then so did anybody would write a confession to get out of that. So he wrote a confession um, and was eventually sent back to Moscow for a retrial or a rehearing. He didn't really have a trial, but he was going to be heard. Funnily enough, he seems to have been let go all by himself to make his own way. But he got stuck at a river crossing when the last ferry had gone. The river froze over, so he had to spend the winter surviving on whatever he could uh, get rations, begging. Um, but he eventually turned up to, in Moscow and had his sentence reduced from 10 years to 8. <laughs> but he then was sent to a Sharaga, a prison for technical workers, where he was put to work on bombers, bomber design, and then rockets. So he was now working on what he wanted, but still under sentence. Um, released from that prison in 1945 and immediately sent to Berlin to pick up the pieces that the Americans had left behind when they had gone in and taken Werner von Braun and the other rocket scientists from the V2 program. Um, Korolev and, and his team picked up some more German scientists, took them back to Russia. Um, and then he, he used 
that, that experience to develop the R7 intercontinental ballistic missile. The military had just delivered uh, or exploded an H bomb and they wanted something to deliver it, to, to send it across to us, America, whatever. Five ton H bomb. Now, his rockets were doing one ton, three tons was possible, but uh, he took on the challenge of delivering a five ton payload. So he needed a new rocket range to test it. So they built at a place called Tayura Tam in Kazakhstan, which was part of the USSR at the time, of course, um, a rocket range. And uh, it is as close as you could get to the equator, but still within the USSR territory. <coughs> July 1955, Korolev had heard of the Americans' plans to put an artificial moon up for this interge international geophysical year. The Americans were planning a satellite. <coughs> Korolev heard about this in July 1955, and he apparently went to the Soviet leadership and said, we've got to do this. We need a space program. We've got to get a satellite up there. He showed Khrushchev the R7 rocket that he was developing and said, I think they knew that it wasn't much good for intercontinental ballistic missiles anymore. It wasn't very mobile. It was going to be a very big rocket. It was going to be fixed. They wanted something that was mobile. So what can we use this rocket for? We can put artificial satellites up. So Khrushchev and the uh, Soviet government said, okay, do it. And they designed a thing called Object D, which was a, a fairly large artificial satellite. Korolev was now working on the R-7 rocket and a satellite. First flight, 15th of May, 57. Three more failures on consecutive days. Um, Think of the production line job going on here. Not only have they made all these rockets, but they're getting on the launch pad, launching, bang, launch, bang, launch, bang. Um, and another failure a month later. But in August, a success. And then the Americans knew what was going on. They could see this, detected this rocket going up. So the Americans knew the race was on. So object D. This, this satellite was big, um, and basically the, the, the Soviet industry couldn't, couldn't do it. They, they'd not built one before, they had a lot of subcontractors all arguing amongst each other, they couldn't get it together. So Korolev went to um, you know, the, the government and said, I need a satellite, I want to make a thing what we called the simplest satellite, which was Sputnik 1. It was a 23 centimeter, 23 inch uh, diameter sphere, 580 millimeters, and they could design that and build it very quickly. It wasn't much more than a, some antennas, um, some some sensors for particles and temperatures in the in space, and they, they got it built. But Korolev um, wanted it to be perfect when it was delivered. It had a weld, a welded joint around there where they joined two halves together and he made them get rid of that. It wouldn't have made any difference at all to its performance, but he wanted it to be perfect. Um, so there we are. And Coates gloves, it's a must. It must be extremely clear, clean everywhere. Don't forget this is the Earth satellite and it's the first one and the very first one. It must also be beautiful. So he was, I mean, he's obviously encouraging people. This is going to be the first one. We're not going to let the Americans be the first, are we? This is it, but it's got to be beautiful. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. And then, sometime in 1957, they heard that the Americans were going to have a talk a talk to a scientific group called Satellite Over the Planet. <laughs> they thought, well, what's that going to be about? It could just be like me talking here, couldn't it? It could be a major announcement, we have got a satellite orbiting our planet. So the Russians said, ooh, we're not going to be, we might not be able to beat October the 5th or October the 6th, but, or the fourth, but 
We might not beat it by much, but let's go for October the 4th. We will launch Sputnik on October the 4th, two days before this planned American conference. Do you know what Sputnik means? Has it got a meaning? Must do. Travelling companion. Thank you. So, basically, they said, right, I want an R7, I want the Sputnik ready October the 4th, and that's when we're going to launch it. And they did. That was it. And that's a, obviously a model of it in this Baikonur Museum. Of course, it was a success. Um, what can we do next? So Khrushchev apparently said, the 40th anniversary of the October Revolution is coming up on the 7th of November. Just a month later, what can we do for that? So Korolev said, well, how about putting a living object into space? We remember Paul Laika. I don't know what Laika means, it means Barker. Because <laughs> he was a yappy little dog. Um, that was a program of sending dogs up into, up, up into space and coming down in sounding rockets and things with, um, to look for hearts to, to see how they reacted to low atmosphere and, and high altitude. So they suggested a dog, one of those dogs. They simply modified the nose cone of this R7 rocket, obviously put in whatever they could, but they did it in about a month. And, uh, they had dog pressure suits available already, you see, from this other program. And in just one month, they, they carried the poor dog into orbit. It was always planned that it would come back. Um, Soviet propaganda maintained that she survived for four days, but in actual fact, it was about six hours. But from what I read, she, she, everything was okay except the heat. She, she just overheated. Um, but there we are, that's, uh, that's the way it was. So another great success. And then Korolev just went on and on with successes. He started on the moon then, Luna 1, 1959. Luna, first one to escape Earth's gravity, not just all that it went. Passed near the moon, went off round the sun, never to come back. Luna 2 hit the moon, probably a crash. Luna 3 went around the moon and do how many people remember this? You know, the, the first pictures of the far side of the moon. Mm -hmm. Very poor pictures, but they were the far side of the moon. <coughs> so then we have to come to the next logical step, the cosmonauts. It was that same year um, as Luna 1, October 59, 40 candidates, most mostly Air Force pilots, were presented themselves to a military hospital in Moscow and they underwent a load of tests. They were spanning centrifuges, they were put in isolation chambers, they were in a, in a quiet, absolutely quiet, um, low pressure chamber. They were subjected to music while being asked questions and given the wrong answers at the same time as they were trying to write out the, the, the right answer to see just how confused they could get. And, and that sort of thing. I guess in those days nobody knew really how to test an astronaut to see if he was, he was um, going to survive. So they tried all sorts of things on these poor guys. Uh, and then they were told to report to Moscow. So it took them about uh, you know, a few months to work out which ones they wanted. They, they reported to Moscow. And after six months of some sort of training, they met Koryalev, who called them My Little Eagles quite a famous little quote, and apparently um, I got a lovely book, it's called Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, who was an American astronaut, and Alexei Leonov, who was a Russian, he was in the first, this first set of Russians, and he, Leonov tells a lot about this, this sort of stage, um, and he quotes Korolev as saying, you know, that he met a hand he told other people, he met a handsome Russian with lively blue eyes, serving strong, an excellent pilot. He is the man we should send into space first. It was of course Gagarin. So almost pre-selected from the beginning. There's Gagarin. Um, he grew up on a collective farm um, in a village that Plushino uh, near Hapsk which was renamed Gagarin in 1968. He went to uh, train as a foundryman, 
who did that. Then he went on to Saratov Technical School and joined the Flying Club. Learned to fly a Yak-18 and a MiG-15 in his spare time. <laughs> he was a pilot from the beginning, basically. He met his wife and they got married. Um, married three weeks after Sputnik 1. And then he graduated with honours from this, uh, this flying school posted to Murmansk near the Arctic Circle. Had two children. The day after his second daughter was born in March 61, he and Herman Titov, another astronaut, were sent to Baikonur for the final part of their led cosmonaut training. So, the day after his second daughter born. Um, obviously, now he had been selected along with Titov to be the first and the backup first cosmonaut. Basically, there he is, a statue of him in, in Baikonur town. There are, of course, many hundreds of. Uh, statues to the Gagarin across, uh, across Russia. But of course, uh, Gagarin and Titov are ready. They have been carrying on with several tests. Um, a Sputnik 4 tried to, uh, you know, orbit and deorbit uh, systems, but it uh, burned up on re-entry. Then they put two dogs up. Strelka, I think that should be Strelka, not Strelka, Strelka and Velka. They were recovered successfully by parachute after 24 hours. Sputnik 6, December, another two dogs with some other animals. Their retro rockets uh, malfunctioned, so they deliberately destroyed that capsule so it didn't land in, in foreign territory. And there's another Sputnik that I read about in, in that book, but I can't, uh, didn't seem to have a number. Um, two more dogs at a stage failed, so it landed in Siberia, but the dogs did survive. Another dog, flight successful. And then there was uh, a bit of, you know, bad news for, for the Russian program. They'd be doing okay, although they'd had these failures. But March 61, consecutive days, they lost a cosmonaut. He was in a test chamber with an oxygen atmosphere and he was changing a dressing uh, or a medical sensor on his skin. It, it had alcohol in it. He took it off and he put it on a heater. <laughs> and fire. Fire ensued. So, just as um, the Americans lost some in, in the Apollo fire, so the Russians lost uh, Bondarenko. And the following, the Americans had launched their first successful Mercury Redstone rocket, so they had set a manned flight for the 25th of April. The Russian wanted to, to beat that. So they did one more with another dog, sort of man called Ivan Ivanovich. He wasn't a really a man, of course, he was a dummy astronaut. And I thought I might just read a bit from, from another book, which is Space Race by Deborah Cadbury. That's another good one. It was hoped that two more automated tests in March would write the problems, these other problems they'd had. First one on 9th of March collected a motley crew into the Vostok craft, as well as Blackie the dog, that's what Chernushka means apparently, as well as Blackie the dog, there were 80 mice, guinea pigs and various reptiles. A man-sized dummy accompanied them, reclining languidly in the ejection seat. He was made to look as lifelike as possible, complete with mouth, eyes, eyebrows, even eyelashes, uh, recalled Mark Galli, an acclaimed TISP pilot who was advising on cosmonaut training. In their enthusiasm, rather than waste space, the scientists stuffed the dummy's hollow body and limbs with yet more mice and guinea pigs. <laughs> then, for decency's sake, they covered him with a white smock and gave him a name, Ivan Ivanovich. <coughs> There really was something deathly unpleasant in the mannequin sitting in front of us, continues Galai. Probably it is not good to make a non-human so much like a human being. One of the aims of the mission was to establish whether the communication system worked in the Voskop and whether a human voice could be heard. An automatic recording would be placed inside the dummy. The Soviet mania for keeping everything secret now asserted itself. Radio stations around the world would pick up what was being said. They could not therefore have anything that sounded like a cosmonaut. 
A recording of a Russian man singing was suggested, but then listening Americans would assume that the Soviet Union had sent a man into space who had promptly gone off his head <laughs> as the song of the Volga boatman resonated around <laughs> Finally, a recording of a choir was deemed suitable. No one would think a choir had been sent into space. <laughs> On 9th of March, a nervous-looking Ivan Ivanovich, fidgeting constantly as his wriggling animals inside settled <laughs> took his friends' first haunt into space and was so entranced by his journey but every so often he sang like a heavenly choir. <laughs> the only problem with that was the dog ate all the foam padding that was there. <laughs> he came back safely. Yeah. Yeah, two, two successful in a row, and that was Corey criteria. Several failures, but as long as two successes in a row, we were ready for the manned flight. Now, launch would be the 12th of April. Who would it be? Um, General Kamanin, head of cosmonaut training, wrote in his diary, it is hard to decide which one should be sent to die. <laughs> he had a choice of Gagarin or Tito. They had a discussion, no doubt, probably for days on end, but uh, Gagarin was calm and self-confident. Titov had a strong character, but he sometimes questioned authority. Korolev preferred Gagarin and Khrushchev agreed. He's a man from the rural heartland, a man of the people. They suggested the 1st of May, which was the great May Day Soviet uh, celebration, but Khrushchev vetoed that idea. What if it went wrong? The death of a first cosmonaut on this great day would forever stain the 1st of May forever after. So it had to come forward. 12th of April. We would have time to get over the failure but they would still be able to take glory in the success. So, yeah, 12th of April, Gagarin and Tito spent the night in a cottage near the pad, which was wonderful to go in there and have a look. And I was there, that's his little cottage, and that apparently is his jacket, and that apparently is his bed and table. Um, but uh, they're very proud to show, show people their, their little museum up there. He was just so close. Laura was so close. Is it right that he was only five foot two? He had to be very small to fit into. I think, I think, well, I don't know about five foot two, but yes, short. Yes. yes, he had to be short, yeah. So he was, yeah, he was fitted into his, his space suit. At the last, very last minute, the letters CCCP were painted on his helmet because they suddenly realized at the last minute, if he lands in a foreign country, we ought to really say who he is and where he's come from. Return <laughs> to sender sort of thing. <laughs> the flight was going to be automatic. Gagarin would have nothing to do. The complete orbit re-entry system was going to, was automatic. But there was a backup mode that if you were to type in a three-digit code, the pilot could take over. So they had another discussion, shall we tell Gagarin what the code is? And they said, no. <laughs> we can't trust, you know, somebody else to, to fiddle. But apparently Korolev told Gagarin anyway. He had a quiet word and he said the code is one, two, three, one. So off he went. And Korolev was called Dawn. He was in the bunker. He was the talking to, going to talk to Gagarin. And Gagarin was called Cedar. That was his code word. 
So we've got him in the, in the capsule, basically. Yuri was smiling in spite of the strain of waiting, arguably even greater than it might have been since witnessing a terrible event a few days back when a rocket had exploded on takeoff. Yuri appeared calm. He would not allow negative thoughts to encroach. The explosion he had witnessed inadvertently with the other cosmonauts had been that of a combat missile. So it wasn't the same thing. It had been most terrifying. He would rather not have seen so graphically what a launchpad disaster looked like. But he was a cosmonaut. He carried on singing softly. Korolev now confirmed that the hatch was airtight. Gagarin began whistling a Soviet tune called Lilies of the Valley. His pulse rate and blood pressure were normal. Over the radio, they could hear Gagarin had lapsed into singing a frivolous version of the song that he had taught him during training. Everybody could hear him. Today you bought me not a bouquet of red roses, but a bottle of Stoliknaya vodka. We'll hide in the bulrushes and we'll get out of our boot, get drunk out of our skulls. So why do we need those goddamn lilies of the valley? <laughs> with a few minutes to launch, Korolev was controlling his voice with effort, forcing it to sound normal. We could tell by the sound of his voice, heavy and broken, that the chief designer was more agitated than anyone else who was there. He hid it all well enough, but I was aware of his heavy breath and the beat of the blue vein in his neck. Korolev looked ill. Soon would come the moment of no return. If the takeoff stalled, he was ready with the abort code. He gave the order for the launch. The button was pressed, ignition began, unleashing the sounds of a giant orchestra tuning up. Ignition is being given, Cedar. I am Zaria. I read you, ignition being given. I read you. Complete takeoff. Hiya Kali, Gagarin shouted, let's go. Below the rocket was an inferno of white and orange flames sucking in and spitting out. The vibration was so great the bunker seemed to shake almost a part of the launch. Lying in his citadel with walls of sheet metal perched on top of the R7, now glutted with fuel, Gagarin became aware of the subtle movement. The rocket shivered like an object in the wind as the gantry fell away. The jangled noise of an orchestra out of tune grew and grew. Sounds were difficult to identify. Slowly, power was lifting him. At 0907 precisely, Lieutenant Yuri Gagarin began to make history. And so it goes on. Bye-bye, thank you. See you again, dear friends. See you soon. Two minutes into the flight, the four booster rockets fell away. Gagarin began to feel the G-forces pressing him down. Almost a minute passed, the nose cone fell away. Suddenly he could see the world below him spread out like a map. And there was a lot of talk that he couldn't see out because he didn't have windows, but uh, he did. See that? I can see rivers and the folds of the terrain. I can tell them apart. I can see the earth. Visibility is fine. And so it goes on. And, and about... 50 minutes into the flight, this was only going to take about 108 minutes, 50 minutes into the flight, everybody was waiting for the for TASS, the Soviet news agency, to broadcast a message. They had three messages in sealed envelopes, two of them were in case of a launch failure, the other one was a launch success, so they instructed them, open the one mark success, please. And it was, attention, attention, all radio stations of the Soviet Union are making an announcement. It will be made in a few minutes. And then it was. Here is our special news. Today, the 12th of April, 1961, the first cosmic spaceship named Vostok, and a man on board, was orbited round the Earth from the Soviet Union. He is Airman Major Yuri Gagarin, an Air Force pilot, a citizen of the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republic. The start of the space multi-stage rocket is reported to have been successful and after it gained the first cosmic speed and separated from the last stage of the rocket carrier, the spaceship began its free flight on an orbit round the Earth. That was a special 
news item on the launching of the first spaceship, Vostok, with a citizen of the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics on board, Major Yuri Gagarin. This is Radio Moscow. Well, I just read he was a lieutenant and now he's a major, so I don't know whether he was suddenly promoted because he'd now got up there. I'm not certain. No, there he was on his mission and even the automatic. He got a bit in trouble when, when his, his spacecraft separated from the carrier rocket and it, it didn't separate plainly. There were still some cables, so he tumbled around a bit until they eventually broke. And then it was a normal, normal landing. It was a bit hairy at that point, apparently. At seven kilometers up, an ejection seat ejected him, and he then leapt out of that and parachuted down. There was a, an anomaly there, in that there was, a, for a long time, the Russians said that he didn't eject from the, from the spacecraft, he landed in it. Whereas every other mission after that of the Vostok series, they clearly said they used ejection seats. Apparently that was because the, the, the world, it's not the Guinness Book of Records, but it's the uh, International Air something, whatever, Federate, Federate, well, whatever. Whoever keeps the records for flight, this wouldn't count if the pilot didn't stay with his craft mm -hmm. from takeoff to landing. So they kept saying he was in it. He was in it when it landed. He wasn't. But it was, of course, such a great achievement that they had to rewrite re the rules to make it uh, acceptable. And that's the other one that uh, they wanted, this thing. the Soviets wanted this in the record books, so they said, um, well, where, you know, where did it launch from? They said, they put a pin in the map and said Baikonur. They didn't want to say where it was launched from because they didn't want people to go looking and spying on them. So they said Baikonur, which is a town a bit up 200 kilometers away from where it was actually launched from. But of course, since they kept saying, we launched from Baikonur, we launched from Baikonur, they eventually renamed the, the Cosmodrome Baikonur. <laughs> it has a few names like Leninsk and Baikonur and, and other, other variations on Lenin, I think. But um, eventually it was uh, Boris Yeltsin that said, well, Baikonur is Baikonur, right? So and that was not too long ago. And so, Gagarin was successful. He, um, there we are, a couple of quotes from him. You can see rivers and folds. I can see the Earth's horizon. It's a pretty halo. I can see the stars floating by. Ladies and gentlemen, this is TGP Nominal. But they didn't stop. They'd, uh, they'd launched Sputniks, now they were in the Vostok series. Um, all these astronauts, including Tereshkova, the first woman astronaut, uh, went up. Then they went on to Voshkod, uh, two and three man missions. Soyuz missions, which were making long duration things, and they were joining up in space. They were developing docking systems. And then we have Salyut, which for space laboratories launched, and this, this Soyuz came up to, to service them and to put crews in them. <coughs> All launched on what we put now call the Soyuz Launcher, because it's developed that common name, Soyuz Launcher. And it's still going today. The Soyuz rocket is just absolutely solid, reliable. We've had it very, very early failures, but now 1768 have been launched. The most recent was one week ago today, carrying crew members to the International Space Station, and they emblazoned that with the words Gagarin on the nose cone. Presumably the rocket's changed in a lot of detail. Sorry? Presumably the rocket has actually changed in a lot Well, it must have done, yes, yes. It's just a concept. I mean, it's, yes, you couldn't go, I don't know whether they had an old thermionic valve or two in there before, but transistors were transistors, and now we've got microchips, and I don't know much about the, the electronics, but um, they, they are, it's, it's simply the same concept all along. Um, it is used for, there's the manned mission. And by the way, the American shuttle has two more flights left. Just two, one at the end of April, one in June. Mm. 
and then it is retired. How are Americans going to get to that by this international space station? America certainly wants a presence on that. They are flying on Soyuz's. That is their only way now of getting to the space station. Um, and then the progress supply craft. I mean, you see this one, this is the emergency liftoff. If, if something goes wrong, there's a rocket there will fire and it will pull the manned capsule off to get it away from the blast that is probably going to ensue. But it doesn't, fingers crossed. This is a progress supply craft which just takes baggage up, food supplies, water, new equipment to the space station. And the same thing that we launched Mars Express on, um, a science version of it. It's got an extra stage of, of rocketry on the top and it will, will give you interplanetary <coughs> as well. And the next step is they're going to start launching these from the European spaceport in Karoo in French Guiana. Possibly August, September, I think. They're, they're preparing a new launch pad there and they will be shipping the components from Russia out there and we'll now have European Soyuzes. The thought struck me just the other day, why don't they actually start launching them from Cape Canaveral or something? They don't seem to be able to focus on what they want to do next. These have just been doing it since 1950-something. Continuous, continuous, continuous. Obviously, development, new technology, etc. This is a very cheap one, actually. That's why we went to, to there to launch Mars Express, because it is a cheap version. It's, it's quantity discount, I would imagine. And the Russians certainly want uh, foreign currency, so they're happy to do it. Um, but they assemble them horizontally. They build it on this great arm that will uh, raise it up, as you'll see shortly. That is one of my pictures, and that was one of the joys of going to this place where, let alone did I ever think I could go there, but to be given a, or allowed to take a camera and take pictures of just about everything was, was utterly amazing. Basically, that is it. Um, 1969 moon landings, just as I was finishing a, a degree course, so sort of natural that I should want to go work in space, basically. Earth-based, really. I think I'm glad I stayed down here. <laughs> and yes, you know, it's, it's just wonderful to, to be in these sort of places. I'm just very grateful. But I, I've been trying to, I know he said this, I just can't put my hands on it today as to where he said it. But orbiting the Earth in the spaceship, I saw how beautiful our planet is. People let us preserve it and increase its beauty, not destroy it. And for heaven's sake, he said that in presumably 1961 or 68. We haven't quite learned yet, have we? I think. So that, that is the end. Um, but yeah, enjoy some food and refreshment. Not all at once, perhaps. It might be chaotic. Um, I'm sure Anne and Rosemary out there will, will sort of assist. And I will see you back in a, not too long. Well, I'm going to judge my future because nobody else is. Somebody put a on. To say, um, really, that was absolutely wonderful. It was. The that has put in, we can all see. I mean, I didn't know about this, but really, it's fantastic the way you've pulled it all together and brought back all these sort of memories for us, just about. But my, my own brother was a rocket scientist, and you don't meet many of them. <laughs> and so he and uh, my Barry and Terry got on quite well together, had lots to talk about. But really, Terry has given us the most fascinating evening, and I think it's rather special that we should be one of the 500 yes. best. <laughs> Probably the best. Weekend, the Financial Times issued this this souvenir edition of their magazine. I don't buy the Financial Times, obviously, but it interviews with quite a lot, about 30 odd 
different astronauts of all nationalities. There's a hundred copies of them around. Please take one, or take two, okay? I'm a member of the British Interplanetary Society, and if anybody has an interest in, in space, think about joining the British Interplanetary, there's pictures there. And this is a book published this week, it's called Yuri Gagarin, The First Spaceman, somewhat in comic strip uh, form. If anybody wants to pass this information on to their grandchildren, children, whatever, we have some copies available. We've got some here, there's more in our shop. So please, whatever, um, enjoy. So that was Terry Ransom with his talk about Yuri Gagarin and uh, the Russian space program. And that was my first ever field recording using my Tascam recorder. So it's a little bit choppy in places, but I enjoyed the talk and um, I hope you do too. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. Dot .weebly.com That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com That comes to the end of another episode of TGP Nominal. Now next month everything should be back to normal with how we do things. Obviously you've got TGP Nominal extra coming at the beginning of June and hopefully we will have our first object of the month from ESA's very own Dr. Maggie Lou. So look forward to that. And then John and I will be back later in June for another TGP nominal. Obviously, I've got to thank Terry Ransom for letting me use the recording. The British Schools Museum in Hitchin. If you get an opportunity to go there, that's fantastic. Nothing to do with space, but it is a fantastic museum. And of course, as I always say, take care one and all. Thanks for listening. And I'll speak to you again real soon. And of course, as John would say, Toodles! If you want to get in touch with us, then send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.